Welcome to the Bolt Zone. This is a competitive magic podcast for the average spike, co-hosted by me, Cody DeBose, and the former PT champion and magic world champion, Nathan Stoyer. We're bringing you the best tips, tricks, and strategies to improve your game and be a better player. And apologies that this episode's coming out a bit later than usual. We had some technical difficulties when we went to record last week, but we're here now. Nathan is back from Las Vegas, and we are going to be recapping the recent world championship. And we're also going to look at some of the you know, coolest moments from that tournament, the the deck list that went into it, and Nathan's going to talk a little bit about the prep that goes into a big tournament like this, and how his team handshake handled the the prep and testing for the event. And then, lastly, we're also going to touch on modern just briefly as the RCQ season continues to roll along. But Nathan, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Cody. I'm glad that we're done with Worlds at this point. You know, the tournament was awesome and. There's a lot to cover from the experience, and at the same time, I feel a sense of relief that this tournament that I put a month into is finally at its close, and I can sort of refocus on some other things going on and set my sights into future events. But yeah, I uh, I definitely want to talk about what the testing experience was like, and also some of the mental side of this, where like, okay, what does it look like getting ready for an event like this? And how do you stay in the zone when you're like about to be at this tournament? Because this is one of the experiences of like, I have a lot of pressure on my back for this tournament. And that manifested in certain ways throughout the event, which, you know, is a recurring issue at any level, regardless of if you're at the world championship or just going from FNM to starting to play RCQs and starting to do well at those to, okay, I'm at regionals, the, this sort of upper level of magic when you get it better and better there just is a lot more stress that you can put on your shoulders. So I wanted to cover that a bit as, as well as the actual formats for the event and how it went. Yeah, that'll be great to break down and, and sort of get your perspective on that. But before we dive into the meat of our content today, we just want to take a moment to thank everyone who's taken the time to listen and support the show. We appreciate all the feedback and support that you guys give us. Um, we hear from you all the time. I've been stumbling across people commenting on social media and, and talking about the show unprompted. And that's that's super cool to, to see and hear that you guys are enjoying the show. So we have no new patrons this week, but want to thank those who have kept up their support. And we do have a couple of new five-star reviews over on Apple Podcasts. So thank you to those who left feedback on the show and with those reviews. If you would like to support the show, you can do so by leaving us a review or by signing up for the Patreon. And we've been teasing now for a couple of weeks that we have changes coming to the Patreon. So we want to let you know about the big news over there. We did just launch our merch shop over at boltthebirdmtg.com slash shop. You'll be able to find shirts, hats, hoodies, pins, and a lot more over there. We have a nice collection that went up at the beginning, and we'll be adding to it over time. So if you want to help support the brand and support the show, you can head over there to pick up some merch. And with the Patreon, we have updated that to include some of these new merch features now. So if you subscribe at the $5 tier, you'll now get a coupon code for 10% off in the shop. $10 patrons get a 15% off code. And if you're planning to pick up any merch anyway, these coupon codes really pay for themselves. So you can uh, help ongoing support the show and, and get yourself some sweet merch and then also we have benefits in the patreon like early release for the podcast discord access and a lot more and then lastly we have a new tier in the patreon the circle of loyalty tier uh, whenever you join that you're going to get a free hat or a beanie as soon as you sign up 
And then every three months you stay subscribed to that tier, you get your choice of a free item from the shop. So this is another uh, great deal if you're thinking about pick up any merch. Don't want to miss out on that. So yeah, go check out our new merch over at bolttheBirdMTG.com slash shop. All right, Nathan, let's get into our episode here. Talking about worlds, we were in, you were in Vegas. What was the experience like this time around? Obviously, this isn't your first time competing at worlds, um, but this one was different since it was in paper. And yeah, tell us, tell us about your trip. Tell us about your time at worlds. So a big part of this worlds experience started when at the beginning of you know september we decided okay when the new set releases we're gonna go full speed and jump into limited and one error that team handshake sort of recognized from previous events was we weren't all fully prepped on limited early enough and so that meant that those last days where we really wanted to focus on constructed our time started to get split and divided in a way that was really hard to address and i think we solved for this issue quite well we spent a ton of time drafting early on and gathering data, just getting some insight into what that process looks like for us. Handshake generally operates by doing a lot of early on in the set, get information about what cards you like and what are good. We don't really use 17 lands or other data sources to inform that super heavily. We try to just just use our own personal experiences and share that in different Discord settings. And so for this event, some people started by drafting on Arena and by drafting on Magic Online and then just giving their general thoughts early on. And then we shifted into doing a little bit more intense practice. So what this typically looked like is we would get eight people from our team. In this case, we had eight players qualified for Worlds, so it was really easy. And we would all join a single elimination queue, which for those who aren't familiar, is just a queue that when eight people join It immediately fires, and unlike a league, you're not paired with random people. It's just whoever signs up for this separate queue. So we would get eight of us into the same draft so that we could, once we were done, go over everyone's draft logs and see how they drafted their seat, how we think they maybe should have drafted differently, and also what sort of decks are consistently winning amongst very good players. So that's a little bit of how we think you can get an edge in limited, which is when you're drafting against good players, during your earlier drafts and middle drafts, you see what the tendencies are of people who are more familiar with the cards. And the downsides of this are you don't really get to see what people outside of your team's preferences like. That's sure. sort of value in dividing up the limited amongst like playing in ladder systems on arena or playing in leagues. And I think we maybe didn't do the best job of this. We had a lot of people doing internal testing, but the external testing could have been a little wider for this. Overall though, um, that's just what the process of playing the testing matches looked like. The other thing that we should talk about is like, how do you decide what colors are good? How did we get to that process? And what did that look like? Um, First, Cody, have you played much of this limited set? And if so, I'd love to hear some of your experience and what you think of the colors before I get into our experience of it. Yeah, I, I actually have played quite a bit of this. The The last few sets, I like hadn't touched a lot of limited. I was just playing a lot of constructed and, and didn't find them super interesting. But I really like this format. I think it's a lot of fun. I think there's a lot of like viable directions you can go with it. My two favorite areas to draft is the black-red aggro deck and then the either uh, black-white or, or abzan enchantments and and bargain deck i think there's like a lot of ways you can build that and work with it i've had a lot of fun 
with both of those archetypes and have had success with those. One I I you see the good versions and it's so sweet is the the blue red archetype and like it just I feel like I never have a chance to build that and like build it well because it's so reliant on like having the right uncommons and stuff. But yeah, I I think the format's sweet and I think there's I think it's pretty balanced. I think there's a lot of ways to go with it. So I'm I'm interested to hear what conclusions you guys came to. There is a lot of depth in this format. And one thing that people typically overcompensate for is what the difference is between the good colors and the bad colors in a set. One thing that you can look at for this set as an example is people generally thought that red was an amazing color in this set. And this was pretty common perception that, okay, red's a good color pretty clearly. Like the card quality at like common can be quite high. Just looking at a lot of the creatures, there's a ton of good ones. Like the rat catcher training is a two drop. There's mm-hmm. a two, three, make a treasure. The red cap thief at a three, even like some middling ones, like, you know, edge wall pack as a four mana, three, three, make a one, one grabby giant four, three, make a treasure. All these yeah. cards that give you additional game pieces of material as the general red theme are pretty high value. But what we found is that people were typically drafting this color super highly. And although there was some depth to it, the issues were the, it was very hard at a good table to end up in there being multiple good red decks. And so we ended up finding that the strongest color green was where we wanted to be a lot of the drafts. There was just a very easy way of getting a good deck was being in the green deck and people passing, you know, Hamlet gluttons, which happened a lot Such earlier. A good card. <laughs> it was like a big part of this, but also green is just really strong. Like the yeah. un- unsung hero of the green decks is like the hollow scavenger, which we thought was a really good common. And that one being like a make a food for one and a three, two that you can give plus two plus two by sacrificing the food. So just a good example of like, okay, the depth of green is pretty high and the power level is really high. We want to be in green decks, but going back to, what this sort of translated for us is we thought that red was relatively overvalued and we wanted to value it less at a high level draft seat. We thought that white was undervalued by quite a decent amount. For example, we found that stock pile celebrant, maybe that's not the exact name, the, the celebrant though, the one that's a three, two that returns an online permanent and scries two yeah. was premium white card and we really like this white card even more than stuff like cooped up as a pacifism like we would take this card over it and there's a ton of synergies with it that just allow it to be a three two scry one later draw a card or later make a two two later exile a creature just yeah. lots of ways of it's making super it. good free your stuff up from like the enchantment based removal exactly so to recap there yeah we thought white was quite undervalued and we liked the white decks a lot Green was very good. Black was very good. Blue, we thought, similar to everyone else, not a great color, but don't be afraid to draft blue decks still. Like, this is a funny and weird statistic and small sample size, so keep it in mind, but we found that blue-white was the winningest deck in our testing process. (laughs) Trophy decks that had the best win uh, trophy percentage. And so you might be thinking, well, there was no theme for blue-white. The thing is... It wasn't a thematic deck that made it good. It was just that the power level of the cards could be quite high if it was an open archetype and people underdrafted those two colors a lot. And so you'd often end up seeing a lot of really strong blue-white cards super late. 
And that can make all the difference in a draft environment. If people are undervaluing a color combination, it is sort of like a metagame where if a color combination is undervalued, you should probably draft it a lot more. That That's interesting. Good. There was a lot of hate for like the the blue-white tap things theme that they tried to go with. And like, you know, that makes sense because you're just having to do things multiple times to remove creatures and like need all the pieces to, to get it to work. But just having the blue and the white cards there because people aren't picking them up and being able to just put the strong ones in a deck that that makes a lot of sense that's it super interesting that that was like the winningest deck <laughs> yeah so moving on to like the the last evaluation before i get into like what happened in the world's draft for me that did not go so well well one card that people on our team really liked including me and this was kind of a, a hot take apparently is this two in veil guide card which is Four mana, two, three with flying and celebration. And if you trigger it, celebration, it gets plus one, plus zero, oh, and lifelink. And we consistently joked in testing that this card was Bane Slayer Angel. That was <laughs> the, the common slang that we used for it as a card that, you know, you pair this up with Knightly Valor or a Charmed Clothier, and suddenly it's huge and races your opponent on most boards. Yeah. And people were passing it seventh, eighth pick. So for us, we were like, okay, it's obviously not a great card. But it's relatively undervalued, and we should draft this card higher than more people. Yeah, that was what I I hadn't really like gravitated towards. And then I I watched you play it at Worlds, and I was like, wow, like this is you get one or two swings in with this in the air with Lifelink, and and the game is just over. That's just such a huge swing, and it's so easy to turn on Celebration, you know, once or twice if that's not what you're all in on. But like you said, the the Charm Clothier, you know, the hopeful enchantments that like either discard or the, the white one that makes the night token like there's just so many ways that you can play one thing and get two things out of it to turn that on right or for example something like you know the hollow scavenger you can cast both halves or you can yeah. use like making a food i mean the the most common thing that happens with the two and veil guide is you play it then your opponent plays a creature then you trigger it and then you've sort of negated the value of their creature by racing in the air effectively and I was very surprised to hear that other teams didn't like this card. But anyways, let's go to, you know, what happened in this draft and um, my thoughts on it. Yeah, we for sure. We can't pull up the exact draft, but I'll just walk you through some of the broad strokes really quickly. But the, the first pick of my draft, I took in up the beanstalk. And the... You know, consensus on our team was this was a very premium green uncommon. I didn't think this at first, but after playing with it more, I came around to the idea that if it's two mana, make an enchantment, draw a card, and then later in the game you, you draw one more card, the card is good. If you ever draw two cards out of it, it's insane and really, really good. And mm -hmm. having an extra permanent in play works really well in the sort of decks that I'm trying to draft. Like I talked about the stockpiling celebrants, the two unveiled guides, and other cards like this just end up working really well with it. So we're pretty high on up the beanstalk. And then second pick, I had a hard pick between Bramble Familiar, which is a two mana ramper that can sometimes be an expensive card, or um, I'm struggling to, into the Sweet Tooth is what it's called. Yeah. Journey uh, to Sweet Tooth or something yeah. like that. Yeah, something Sweet Tooth. <laughs> I think it's into the Sweet Tooth, something like that. But make a 1-1 one -one Saga one green, make a one, one, make a food second chapter. And then you can put X plus one counters where X the number of food you control. So usually two counters minimum onto the creature. So very, very good uncommon. And I ended up taking the ramp creature over it thinking, 
okay, I'll take the ramp creature because it works well with up the beanstalk and the seven mana mode will come up. In retrospect, I think this was probably a poor pick just because the power level is much higher than the other card. And just a classic example of it's hard to play with a rare enough times to know the difference between uh, a good rare and a very good uncommon. Sure. Fast forward through my draft. It did not go super well pack one. And I was sort of taking some speculative picks, trying to figure out my lane, knowing that I was going to be in a green deck. And then I thought I was green white for a while, getting those two Toon Veil guides that I talked about as cards we liked a lot. And then pack three, I ended up getting past some very good cards that I wanted to play in black. I got, you know, a candy grapple as just a good removal spell and a Mosswood Dread Knight, just like a premium two drop rare. And so all this kind of came together for me ending up playing this like green, white splash black deck. And surprisingly, you know, I liked my deck a good amount. I was happy with how my deck turned out. I thought on average, this deck will two one a draft pod and, you know, Sometimes it'll 1-2, sometimes it'll 3-0, but very rarely will it go 0-3. Mm-hmm. In the actual rounds, I think I ended up sort of on the poor side of variance in some spots. I was on camera for the draft for those who want to see the actual draft and the matches. The first two were on camera, I believe. But for the first match, I won game one with the two Toon Veil Gods, just life-linking in and crunching yeah, my opponent. That was sweet. <laughs> and, uh, and then game two... We both took Mulgans and I had a hand of like Utopia Sprawl into Up the Beanstalk into Hollow Scavenger and with a one lander. So two mana sources with Utopia Sprawl and the Up the Beanstalk to redraw. Pretty easy keep, I think, and limited. But For sure. my opponent had a very strong curve and I died by turn five or something. I was no longer able to function. Yeah. So that was the game. They just went, yeah, very strong curve three drop ramp creature into a five drop on turn four into a removal spell and my hand folded to that and then game three i'm mulligan on the play i keep a very close six that i'm not sure about and my opponent ends up having a, a super strong draw with turn two questing droid into multiple removal spells just growing that creature into a range that i couldn't really deal with and i lost so that was my first limited round Second limited round, I played against uh, Bart Van Eden. And, you know, I will say that, you know, didn't want to cover this a ton, but Bart's a player that's had some controversy in the past. And a few years ago, he got into some trouble for um, searching his deck for a card and basically vampire tutoring that card to top so he could draw it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since then, you know, he's reformed in the community and he's tried to you know make a better name for himself but there's certainly a lot of controversy around him and so it was sort of a spot where you know i know he's a very good technical player he won the mocks this year but certainly was something that i was like a little bit worried about initially so yeah it's always in the back of your mind yeah always hard to keep track of and that's when you really want to think about playing world championship right there was the, a lot of controversy around not not just this player, but like uh, several players that were at Worlds that there were like known issues with in the past. Yeah. So he ended up beating me pretty convincingly with a good deck. And suddenly I started 0-2 in Worlds. So that was a bummer. I, uh, I quickly dispatched my round three opponent. And that was the draft. So 
felt really good about the deck. I actually like where I ended up. I think I would have drafted a little differently in the future, but limited is hard. And hearing, you know, that our team had some really good drafting um, happen. We had, I think, three three O's out of the eight of us was really, really cool. So I, I don't feel bad about the process, but if I could go back, I would have changed a few decisions in the draft. And, you know, the difference between one draft pick or one draw step means a ton at these high levels. So I kind of felt that, well, I could have maybe draft a little better. I was happy with how I played. I was mentally staying in it as much as I could. And yeah. it's the sort of thing where, you know, by the end of the draft, I could look back and be like, okay, I'm happy with my performance. My record is not indicative of, you know, my performance thus far. And I'm just going to have to keep my head up and try my best and construct it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's such a hard hurdle to overcome. The Like going down 0-2 and then having to, to bounce back and try and rally. To- it is tricky. It, it's also the sort of thing where this Worlds made it so that if you go three and four, you're eliminated from day two contention, whereas previously everyone who competes could still make it in day two. So I think that being a factor really impacts how valuable it is doing well in this first draft, whereas otherwise you could have a rough first draft, but you have a ton of other rounds to bounce back in. Yeah, and there was one less round of Constructed this time around, right? There was, so last Worlds was only, uh, it was three rounds of Limited and then 11 rounds of Constructed. This uh-huh. time was six rounds of Limited and eight rounds of Constructed. So okay, that's right, because the last one was like two different Constructed formats. Yeah. Right? Yeah, okay, gotcha. Well, yeah, that's that's interesting. It, it was definitely rough watching you go down early like that. I, I felt for you. What, uh, any other thoughts about Limited or about that portion before we talk about some standard? The thing that, is more a question than really something I've been answered to is how highly should we be valuing this limited data that we have through arena and these metrics at the top levels of play. I find this to be a very contentious topic internally and even trying to discuss with someone, well, this card is better than this card, but the data suggests X and I believe Y is true is the sort of conversation that can feel really repetitive and really like there's no clear answer here because my intuition doesn't line up with the numbers. And so You want to trust that these numbers are more meaningful, but at a certain level, it's like, I want to default to a, a uh, combination of my experience and what the numbers tell us. And if they're so misaligned at a certain point, maybe I have to resort a little bit more to the data if it's so drastic. So that's something I need to keep in mind because I find that our team tends to rely more on experience than the data. And particularly myself, it's something that I've mostly felt, you know, this data isn't great and I'm going to try to come with a different mentality and utilize it a little better for future events. Yeah. I mean, I think there is a difference like at, at high levels like this where, you know, people just play differently and evaluate cards and, and decisions in game differently than like the masses who are, who are playing and, and contributing to the data and, it does make it hard to to sort of differentiate and decide what's what. But I think what we've talked about in the past, as far as like limited being a a good litmus test for like your strength as a player in game, you know, do you think that also comes into this too? You know, for sure. Players who are, who are testing on the team are, are like by nature, better players than the majority of people contributing to this data set. So like, how does that factor influence those decisions and and which side you need to trust that's tricky it it is tricky and i don't know if there's a clear answer but 
regardless of if there is or isn't, it is clear that we should be considering all these factors and not disregarding them entirely. So striking a balance is the ultimate goal here, I would say. For sure. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, let's talk about Constructed for a little bit. Uh, So at Worlds, there was a very diverse meta, I think maybe a little more diverse than than some people had expected going in. There was talk about, you know, a lot of consolidation around Esper, which we did see it was 19% of the field. But then, you know, after that, there was a, a open metagame and there were a lot of different decks. We saw quite a few decks place in the top eight and do well. Mono Red was up there at 9.5%. Esper Legends behind that at 86 which is interesting because that had kind of fallen off quite a bit in favor of the more mid-range strategy. Um, and then we saw a lot of the the domain and the ramp strategies. Golgari mid-range was a newcomer. And then Soldiers came back, but it looked a lot different this time. You guys, you guys brought a, a really interesting Soldiers list I want to talk about. Where do you want to sort of start with that? Let's start with the metagame and what the implications of it were. So this standard metagame is best compared to something like a pioneer field more than anything else. And that being said, like when you look at the different decks being represented, it doesn't tell the full story of when you registered a deck for this tournament, there's no way that you didn't think you had a bad matchup somewhere because every deck had some place where you would struggle. For example, the Esther midrange decks, while they were good into, you know, a lot of the other strategies like in the field that their weak points were, if you face up against something like, okay, this Rakdos Reanimator deck, if you face up against even Domain Ramp, I think wasn't a great matchup for the Esper Midrange builds that were brought. And mm-hmm. someone told me Esper Legends was good against Esper Midrange. It would be a little bit unfavored. But the strength of the Esper Midrange deck is that it's sort of like Red, Black, and Pioneer, where it's a good, you know, Jundi deck that has some very strong broken draws. And the core of the deck being... Rafine and Wandering Emperor and Virtue of Loyalty and Fairy Mastermind meant that all your cards, card for card, were extremely powerful and could threaten to win the game on their own. So that's what this deck is doing. It's just throwing a lot of threats out there and place removal spells and counter spells to make the balance work. Yeah. Um, in contrast, you know, the Mono Red deck, this was a deck that I think our team disrespected a bit in testing. I feel that the Mono Red deck was a little bit better than we gave it credit for, and this was just because. Cards like Monstrous Rage as a pump spell were actually good in this build. Godric was super strong. Um, basically, the, the red deck was just good. And I think that I would never register this deck unless I thought it was like much better than other options. Because at like a high level, I find that the agency you have with these decks is much lower. Just like the typical mono red problems where like, yeah. um, you basically can't change a lot to affect your matchup spread. Whereas other decks can try to beat mono red if they try hard to. And so Mm -hmm. predict, for example, the number of knockout blows that white decks are going to play, or in our case, Lunark veterans that we're going to play in mono in soldiers. So that was a thing where we thought the deck was good, but it had issues. That's interesting because with mono red, like the last time we talked about standard, we talked about how mono red was just like kind of middling and that, you know, it didn't really have the tools it needed. And now, like you mentioned that, that you sort of underestimated it a little bit and the two cards you mentioned were both like brand new cards. So do you think that it was just more of like a factor of like not getting to see it a ton with these new cards yet? I mean, this tournament happened so close to release that sure you got to test, but maybe the archetype hadn't fully evolved yet. Yeah. I think that mono red definitely got better as people tune their list more. And also I think that our team as a whole sort of just thought things were good against mono red where yeah. maybe they weren't. So 
this was, I think, a little bit of an error on our side. But, yeah, something to keep in mind. The Monterey deck was strong. Going through the list really quickly, I'll just run through these decks. But Esper Legends, we don't have to talk about a lot. Just a more aggressive version of the Esper Midrange deck. And Domain Ramp, this was... This is sort of like the mono green of standard, if mm-hmm. you compare it to Pioneer. I see this deck as something that will win through hate and through a lot of counter magic and interaction if given enough time. So the yeah. scary part against this deck is you don't want to give them much time. But the problem when you play it is sometimes you just lose to yourself and it has these structural issues that are hard to fix because your mana base is bad and you can draw you know really bad sequences of cards. Basically, the domain ramp deck is just like uh, the boogeyman of the format in the sense that it keeps a lot of the smaller mid-range decks in check, and it really affects how you can build your deck because you can easily lose to this deck if you don't give it enough respect in deck building. For sure, yeah. Golgari mid-range, just another fine mid-range deck that I don't think it had any great matchups, but it didn't have a ton of bad matchups. Again, similar to to Rakdos and Pioneer. Um Modern White Humans, we didn't know a ton about this deck, just like an aggro deck. And we didn't have much of an opinion, to be honest. I think it was underexplored, but it didn't seem to have a great showing at the actual event. Yeah. I was interested to see that the the reanimator deck was still around. That kind of spiked up around the the last, whatever the standard RC was. That was like the big new thing. And then it kind of fell off the face of the earth. Yeah, I remember back in San Diego when the RC happened there. This was like a popular deck of the weekend. And then... It showed up a bit at the Pro Tour March of Machines, and then not a ton after that. But this version of the deck seemed fine to me. They relied a lot on Big Score to have their engine going. They still played Cruelties and Removal. And then they had a cool sideboard plan of Shieldred and Decadent Dragon as sidestepping commonly played Hate and like Counterspell. So you just board into Duress and Decadent Dragon and Shieldred. And uh, I actually lost to this deck, which I'll talk about in a bit, but... I, I thought the deck was cool, but not that great. Yeah, it's just, it's so much worse without Fable. <laughs> yes, that's the big thing. It's missing, good point. And then Esper Control. Our team had three people in Esper Control, and I hated this deck. I was a huge anti Esper Control player on the team. I couldn't win against anything with the deck. I thought it was bad against <laughs> most of the decks, but I I don't really know how our team you know decided to play it. They just felt comfortable with it, and they liked its matchup spread. But for me, when I was playing it, I was like, oh my gosh, this deck sucks. Like, I, I can't win against anything. And they played a really cool tech card that almost changed my mind for a minute. They played Jace the Perfected Mind as a way of milling out domain when you have multiple copies of it. So <laughs> That's cheeky. That was some cool tech. You board that in against them and the games go long enough where you can just mill them for 30 and kill them usually. Yeah, that's interesting. Especially the, especially the versions playing Beans. Yes. The Beanstalk decks, especially. And if they weren't playing Beanstalk, the matchup was so much easier for us for that. It was like, okay, we have Jaces and you don't have Beanstalks. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a May. <laughs> right, right. It's certainly not. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's talk about this Soldiers list. I am very interested to, to sort of hear what the thought process was behind it. Um, you know, on the surface, it, it looks like it's a lot more into the tempo plan with flash threats and being able to hold up counter spells. Zephyr Sentinel, Resolute Reinforcements. You get some ability to like rebuild and grind games out with Knight Errant. And then, you know, we've mentioned a couple of times the, the Lunark Veteran. You still have Harbin. But yeah, let's let's talk about this a little bit and tell me where you guys sort of 
started building was this a, a handshake tron situation where you tore the deck down and started from scratch again or very similar yes that's a good way of framing it i think that we felt the initial list had this direction that we didn't think was good but we identified that it had a lot of cool things and really good things going for it so for example looking at the initial list we felt that there wasn't enough one drops and the one drops you could play that were soldiers were kind of bad like Yoshi and frontliners, we didn't want to max out on. We thought it was not great. But also the main card that people normally played, which we thought was kind of heinous, was Valiant Veteran. And so as we played more with the deck, we realized we don't want to be some aggressive deck that tries to swarm our opponents with cheap creatures and kill them and folds to lots of removal spells. We want to be a deck that wins with Knight Errant convoking and being recast with Zephyr Sentinel and then winning with wedding announcements and getting value out of our Murexes and our uh, beachheads pumping our team in the mana base and essentially making our opponent's removal bad. So that was a big philosophy of the deck. And initially I spent a ton of time testing Esper Legends for this tournament before putting it down for a series of complex reasons. But for a while we tested Esper Legends and Mono Blue Cauldron. We had a version of that that was very interesting but we put those two decks down after testing and moved over to Soldiers after seeing the success of it versus most of the decks we had. The main strength of this deck and sort of the reason that Lunark Veteran maybe doesn't make sense at first glance is that you win this game by basically making your opponent's cards obsolete in terms of like the value they can provide. So for example, like when you're playing against... Um, like other creature decks, you know, mono white, humans, green, black, and we could say mono red, like these sort of decks. A lot of your plan is to just make their removal bad versus mono green, or sorry, green, black versus mono red. You know, the life gain is really good against humans. It's a body that can trade with some of their creatures and also being able to flash it back is good. But the soul sister effect just helps you when you're trying to beat children at the same time. So our common plan against Esper was you can just play some Lunarchs and you can get through a lot of cards, but eventually with Rafine, they can break through. So our goal is let's make their shield or triggers bad, find removal for Rafine, hopefully in post-board games, and eventually win with Harbin. Um, Lunark Veteran was just the best one drop as you know the next way of phrasing it, like better than all the other one drops. It's not a soldier, but the other one drops that you could play are bad and we want to make our Knight Errants really good. So that's yeah, how we- that, that makes sense. There's a lot of upside to it. Like yeah. you said, there's not there's not very many good one drops that fit. So the the last card that was sort of techie with the deck was we played two copies of Regal Bunny Corn in the main deck and one copy sideboard. And this is like the anti Esper tech where versus Esper the boards get huge and typically can stall out. And so Corn allows you to start chumping making them chump block and it's huge you can protect it with zephyr sentinel you can eventually give it flying with harbin and it helps your wedding announcements be a little more effective too at just sizing it up so we we really liked money corn in the deck we found it very last minute and it was kind of the last straw where i was like okay this will push me in the direction of playing soldiers yeah that, that makes sense um so you obviously sadly didn't get much of a chance to to play with the deck since you're only able to do two constructed rounds, but we did see Simon, um, Simon Nielsen do really well with it all the way into top four, I believe. And 
watching the deck play out and, and watching him take some really interesting lines, it, it seemed like a sweet deck. Looking back, do you feel like it was the right choice? Would you have changed anything? I think amongst the options we had, it was the best choice. I feel that if I had more time, I would have tried to refine an Esper build to my liking. That was something that I kind of came back to on the last day, but didn't have enough people on board to pursue that idea further. And, you know, when you're working with a team, sometimes it's more important to have a good list with good plans than to try to pick the archetype that maybe is the best choice, just because you know that these ideas have been thought through extensively and and you're going to have just a very good spread of plans across different matchups. Also, Soldiers is a huge surprise factor. It's really hard to play against this deck. And even if you're an experienced player, like the play patterns are extremely confusing. I uh, I won the first game of Constructed, for example, versus Resolved Atraxa because my opponent missed that I could a Gonjo my own creature for Xaxes and kill him <laughs> in a spot where he could not have lost. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, this deck definitely is hard to play with. And I think this version specifically makes it even harder just like the ability to like hold up mana and they don't know what you're holding up and being able to flash stuff in to, to change math is is super good so i like the deck a lot and where do you see the the archetype going moving forward do you think this is like a, a world championship deck or do you think this is something that might stick around i think it could stick around i didn't really mention it a ton but i think esper can be sort of a tricky matchup there's stuff you can do from both sides one important card is Lantern Flare as a way of controlling like the life totals on both sides and helping you deal with creatures when the boards get big. And so that's one way you can hedge against Esper more that we found was good. But yeah, I, I see it as a deck that can still compete and be good in current standard. Yeah, sounds good. Well, we'll have to keep an eye on it. Um, obviously, we have a couple months still of this modern RCQ format, but then it'll be moving back to standard for rcq so we'll see what sort of innovation happens between now and then and we'll also be getting uh new sets in there too so we'll see how those shape up we're going to talk about modern just real quickly before we wrap up but before we do that i want to let you know the podcast is brought to you by boogie board the ultimate lcd life pad boogie board's patented reusable writing surface allows you to track life totals and jot down quick notes during casual or competitive play never worry about ruining a notebook in your bag or running out of paper mid-game again after taking down your opponent just press the button to clear and you're ready to start over boogie board's best-selling jot tablet offers plenty of writing surface while the jot pocket is perfect for tighter playing spaces boogie board is available at friendly local game stores across the country and at major retailers you can learn more at myboogieboard.com games that's myboogieboard.com games never start a match without your boogie board all right so looking at modern nathan you uh last week we're able to clinch a spot in the top eight of the Super League. That's super exciting, and congrats on that. I was only a little disappointed to see that you moved away from Scam and entered your villain arc with Four Color Beans, but what, what was your thoughts about playing with that deck? And you played against Scam twice this week, so I guess you made the right choice. That matchup feels pretty bad for Scam. Well, my immediate thoughts when I'm playing these small Super League fields is I'm going to metagame against my opponents, and I'm going to be decisive in what I think they're going to bring and try to get an edge if I'm right. So my my thought was this young dingo really loves playing Scam, who's in my bracket, and I couldn't see him playing anything but Scam. And uh, Jesse Robkin played Scam the previous week and may just run it back. And lastly, the other person was Aspiring Spike, who really likes creature-based decks and artifact decks. So I'm going to pack a ton of cyborg cards for him in order to metagame against that matchup. 
And one funny thing I did there was I played two Curse Totems um, as a hedge to him, either playing Creature Combo deck or Yawgmoth, something like that. And I also played two Force of Vigors, just as way of dealing with artifacts and enchantments. So those hedges would have been huge if I played that matchup. I think I didn't end up running into him, but it's yeah. always feel like, oh, I registered this deck and my sideboard cards were specifically good against his, you know, green, um, basically food combo deck that he had. So yeah. I was happy with that. Spike's but... too predictable with the artifact decks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought that was funny. But yeah, when I was playing in to scam, I, I thought, well, I know the scam matchup is good with the four color bean deck. And I also think that playing the scam mare can be a little more random against other good scam opponents. So I'll try running a deck that I think is very strong here. And I ended up playing a stern scolding main deck as a hedge. I thought it would hit spikes decks range and also both of the, both of the other two ranges. So that was like, okay, I'll, I'll play this and it seemed like a good small hedge. And then sideboard, some celestial purges. I, I thought the main way I would lose was blood moon. So I'll just play some additional blood moon answers and it kills everything in their deck. And so yeah. I felt good about that choice. Yeah, I think all the games I was able to watch this one, and all, all the games were were interesting to watch. And I thought your commentary was great too. There was a lot of uh, good insights. So, and if you haven't watched that week of uh, Super League, make sure you you go back on Twitch and catch the VOD or something. There was a lot of a lot of good stuff to see. So after getting some reps with the four color deck, obviously we're still seeing that sort of hanging around at the top of the meta. What are your thoughts about the the deck? Any like big errors that you notice playing it, or any weaknesses? Any changes you think the archetype needs right now? The strongest part of the deck right now is that it has eight value cards, like eight draw engines with four up the beanstalk and four one rings. And the the good part about this is you're not going to run out of gas as easily before you were kind of throwing away resources in order to try to uh, draw the one ring and, and eventually catch up there. Now I see it as the deck is very good against competing creature decks, but against spell-based things, it's still rough. And so if you're trying to attack this deck, some sort of spell-based combo deck would be very strong against it. And in response to that, my hedge with the four-color deck would be to pack a sideboard full of cheap answers to those spell-based combos. Um, that would be probably the easiest way of beating it, though. Otherwise, the deck seems very good to me. I like Scam, and I like the four-color beans deck, and those two both seem like top tier. Yeah, I, I agree with that for sure, and I think we'll we'll definitely see a lot of both of those moving forward. All right. Well, that is all we're going to talk about with Modern for today. Um, There's a little bit of a shorter episode, but Nathan, any other thoughts you have before we head out? Anything else about World, Standard, Modern, or or anything else coming up? No, I'm glad we got to recap this, and soon we'll be back with you know more discussions about Pioneer season and Modern season with some upcoming events going on. Yeah, for sure. We had um, a couple of regional championships in Pioneer. Uh, over this past weekend that we didn't have a chance to we wanted to, to, to focus on worlds today and, and recap that but we will have some more pioneer talk coming up like nathan said but yeah until next time we appreciate you listening to this episode of the bolt zone if you enjoy the show please give us a follow and leave a review on the podcast platform of your choice we read all of them love to hear from you guys you can get in touch with nathan and i over on twitter using the hashtag bolt zone chat we did a giveaway a few weeks ago and it was great to, to hear what everyone's playing in modern we'll probably be doing another giveaway soon but uh, definitely reach out let us know what you think about the episode let us know what you're up to with hashtag bolt zone chat and if you want to help support the show you 
you can consider subscribing to the Patreon. Again, all the all the new stuff going on over there. We'll put the link for that in the show notes. And don't forget to also check out our new merch over at bolttheBirdMTG.com slash shop. And until next time, get out there and sling some spells.